Open to Job 19. Job 19. The title this evening is Job Trusts in His Redeemer. Job Trusts in His Redeemer. This chapter records one of the lowest points emotionally and spiritually, and also one of Job's highest points. And after he complained about the hostility of his accusers in verses 1 through 6, and he complained about the hostility of God in verses 7 through 12, and he complained about his, the hostility of his relatives and friends in verses 13 through 22, Job rises to a new level of spiritual faith. And he was sure that he would see God and that he would be cleared by God in verses 23 through 29. But the mistake Job is making or is beginning to make is this. He knows that they're wrong. But their being wrong doesn't make him right. His attitude is wrong too. And I mentioned this last week that, you know, how we respond to people's actions towards us, though they're wrong, how we respond can also be wrong. If it's not in compassion and love. Job has a wrong view of God right now, even though light breaks in from time to time, even though he has some light of what's going on from time to time. He also, you know, called his friends. Uh, his friends are also causing Job to break down his defense. And we'll, when Bildad finished describing the terrors of death, last time we were together, Job replied by describing the trials of life, his own life. And he told his friends, I don't have to die to experience trials. I'm experiencing them right now, and you don't seem to really care. Now, this is Job's second response to Bildad's second speech tonight, and it focuses mostly on the suffering that he was going through. It also includes some great things that he said about faith in God, which helps balance out his criticism about God in, the, in his response. Job starts his response to Bildad's second speech by describing the mistreatment, the abuse he's gotten from the things that Bildad said about him. In talking about the mistreatment, Job also includes the other two friends along with Bildad, Zophar and Eliphaz. Their speeches haven't done him any good either. They've only added to Job's suffering. So this subject of mistreatment doesn't start here. It will also be found in other places in Job's speech. In telling about the mistreatment by his friends or the abuse, which comes mostly from what they said, Job talks about the continuation of the mistreatment. Let's begin with verses 1 through 3. And Job says, Then Job answered and said, and again he's answering to Bildad here in his second speech, he says, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have reproached me or criticized me, you are not ashamed that you have wronged me. So the first thing that Job says about his three friends' verbal abuse is, how long? I mean, how long are you going to keep talking bad about me? Instead of comforting me with your words, you continually abuse me. And the phrase here, these ten times, it's not speaking about a specific number that his friends actually spoke harshly to him ten times. It's a figure of speech. Like, I, I have a habit of saying, you know, oh, I've done that a million times. Not really, but, you know, it's an expression of, you know, a figure of speech. And, and it's used that way in, several times in the Bible. 
Job is saying to his three friends that they have criticized him many times in their speeches. Now, our words either help or hinder, they either heal or scar, or they build up or they tear down. We either add to people's burdens or we help them bear their burdens with courage. Paul said in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. And when you do, you double their rejoicing. And he said, weep with those who reap, weep. And when you weep with those who reap, you're cutting their weeping in half. Job's friends just cut him up with his word, with their word. They made him feel worthless and helpless while he was going through all of his suffering. We need to be sensitive to other people's needs and struggles. Even if people need to be rebuked, we should do it in love, as Paul said. And our word should encourage them, not make them feel worse. Job said in verse 3, you're not ashamed, man, that, you have, that you've wronged me. I mean, what they did so was cold-hearted. I mean, Job had been bombarded with terrible disasters. You know, his wealth was, was destroyed, his family. You know, it brought a, a very painful and, and loathsome health, health problem to him. And yet his friends tore him up with shame. The coldness of his three friends shows how sin can terribly harden a sinner's heart. We often hear on the news about some criminal committing a grisly, unthinkable crime without so much of an ounce of shame or guilt. And many people are shocked at the awful things that these criminals do and they wonder, how could anybody do something so terrible? Well, it's because sin hardens the heart and sin takes away feeling. It, it makes us callous. It takes away sensitivity. It takes away guilt and affection. Look at verse 4. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. Job said, even if I have sin, it's my sin, it's not yours. God and I can work things out, so just leave me alone. The word err, it means an unintentional sin. Job still held on to his integrity. He said, I haven't done anything that would cause this suffering in my life. But Job totally knows that a person's sins can bring judgment on them. Verse 5 and 6. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and you plead my disgrace against me, know then that God has wronged me and surrounded me with his net. Job's friends acted very proudly in their abuse of Job. And we've seen this pride before in his friends' earlier speeches. You might even get the idea that they were inwardly, they were glad to see that Job was going through all of these calamities because, again, they thought that Job was the biggest sinner of all. And yet the Apostle Paul says in the first 13, verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love doesn't rejoice in, in, in the, 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 the bad things that happen to other people. Paul said love rejoices in the truth. Now, what brings joy to your heart? Bad or good? I mean, if you hear something that ba bad that happened to somebody that you don't like, oh, does that make you feel good? Ah, they're getting what they deserved. And even if they deserved it, you know what? Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Does it make you feel good? Or does it make you sad to see your enemy suffer? The word plead in verse 5 involves in its meaning to convict, to judge, to reprove. Or rebuke, and these friends uses Job, and these friends use Job's troubles to condemn him again as a great sinner. His friends have come to the conclusion 
that because of everything he's going through, he had to be a monster of wickedness. And this has been his friend's thinking all along. They saw Job's troubles only as proof that he was a monster of a sinner. But it was the way that the people thought in that day. That if you had great troubles, it's because you had great sin. But again, from the first two chapters, we know that that's not true. But condemning Job showed that these three guys didn't have any wisdom at all when it came to the cause of Job's problems, his calamities. Job believes his troubles have come from God. And in, the, in this part of his response to Bildad, he accuses God of afflicting him. It was a very critical accusation about God. Speaking so critically about God is why Job's three friends speak so critically about him. But it hasn't given them a reason for saying that Job is guilty of some great sin, which again caused his troubles. But his critical words about God came after his troubles and not before. And even though he speaks critically about God, later on Job makes a wonderful statement of faith in God. Job hasn't rejected God, but in his pain and his suffering, sometimes he doesn't speak well about God. And it may be something that we all may have done. Verse 6. Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me uh, surrounded me with his net. Job's reasoning for God afflicting him is not good. He doesn't honor God here with his reasoning. He felt like a trapped animal, according to verse 6. Job saw himself caught in God's net, not because of his sins, but because God had trapped him. Job wasn't running away from God, nor was he guilty of sin. It was God who had suddenly caught him for reasons Job doesn't understand. And because he doesn't understand, he clearly blames God for all of his problems, and it's not the first time. Now, Satan isn't mentioned as being the one who's behind all of Job's troubles. Now, we know that from the first couple of chapters. And Satan loves it every time somebody blames God for their problems. God's the cause of my problems. And many times we do blame God for our problems. And many of these problems have been caused by Satan. And many, though, have been caused by our own doing because we didn't listen to the word of God and led by the Holy Spirit. And yet we still blame God. Job feels that God has rejected him because God has afflicted him. And he mentions two ways that this rejection is shown. Look at verse 7. He says, here's the first way he feels that God has rejected him. Because if I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. The second reason, if I cry aloud, there is no justice. He prayed sincerely for God's help. But so far, God hasn't let up on his problems. So he figures God didn't answer his prayers. So again, this is one of the ways that he feels God has rejected him. And just like Job, we often see a delay in answered prayer as a denial. Because God has not answered as fast as we'd like him to, and it's taken a long time. We figure, well, he's not going to answer my prayer. And we often come to the conclusion in our troubles that God isn't answering our prayer. He's not going to answer our prayers because he doesn't answer right away to fix my problems. 
Psalm 31, verse 14 and 15 says, But as for me, the psalmist said, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. He says, my times are in your hand. It's all in God's timing. And sometimes when God makes you wait, it's because he may have something better for you. And secondly, he says he believes why God's rejected him because his purity is not supported. Job wants justice. He wants to be cleared of any wrongdoing. His friends have accused him of being a great sinner, again, because he's going through a lot of problems. Job knows he's not a great sinner. And Job wants God to support his, his integrity, his purity, his innocence. He wants God to clear him of any wrongdoing that would bring such troubles upon Job. But instead of getting God's support for his innocence, God seems to only be afflicting him. So he's complaining about a lack of justice from God. But Job will learn that his thinking is all wrong and also about prayer. Because God will eventually declare Job's righteousness to his friends when we get to chapter 42. And through the centuries, many have read about Job and they've learned that his troubles went, that they weren't because of any great sin in his life, but that Satan caused them because he was righteous. If you want Satan to leave you alone, quit living for God. That's it. You see, when you're living for God, you're a target for Satan. God doesn't want you to be a good witness. God doesn't want you to be useful. I mean, Satan doesn't want you to be useful to the kingdom of God. Just quit serving God, quit living for him, and Satan will leave you alone. But God truly did support Job's innocence. Look at verse 8. Job goes on, He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. Job complains that God by afflicting him with all of these problems, has greatly restricted him. You know, and they have. His, his afflictions have restricted him. But God, again, isn't the one who's restricted him. It was Satan. Satan isn't in the business of giving anybody freedom. Like sin, Satan restricts. He limits and he enslaves people. And Job describes his restrictions here. Notice. First of all, Job's troubles have been like a fence, he says. He's fenced in. He says, I'm limited as to what I can do and where I can go. He couldn't move around like he used to because of his difficulties. And a lot of people can relate to what Job is saying here. Sickness or some other trouble comes to them and it restricts their movement, their behavior. It restricts everything they do or want to do. It's frustrating. It's like now. We can't go to restaurants inside. We're not, you know, worshiping inside. We, we can't go here. We can't do this. It's limited us. You know, you want to go somewhere? Well, you don't know if it's going to be open. You don't know what's going to be. It's just, it's frustrating. And then he says, darkness is another way that Job uh, expresses the restrictions where he feels God has brought upon him, uh, that God has brought upon him by afflicting him with many troubles. Darkness does restrict getting around. When you're in a dark room or some other dark place, hey, you, you, you can't move around quickly and freely. You have to move around slowly because you don't know what you might bump into. Verse 9. 
He has stripped me of my glory and has taken the crown from my head. Job talked earlier about the things his three friends said about him. Back in verse 3. Now he accuses God of bringing a lot of reproach upon him by afflicting him. Notice it says again, God has stripped me of my glory in verse 9. Job had a lot of glory before his problems. Job was considered to be the greatest man in the East. Job was well-known. He had a reputation. He was a well-known man. He was highly respected. People asked for his counsel, and they gave him a lot of respect. But now, all of his troubles have taken away all that honor and the prestige. You know what? It's even made him something shameful. Job has also lost his position and a lot of authority because of his problems. The word crown speaks of position. He's taken my crown from my head. Second part of verse 9. He's taken my crown from my head. Even his servants don't take orders from him anymore when you get to verse 16. Because he doesn't any longer have a position that brought respect from other people since God has afflicted him with all of the troubles that he has. Verse 10. God breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He felt like something was destroyed. A wall or a building where God's troops swooped down on him and left him in ruins. Job may have been looking back at his business affairs or his household. Maybe he was thinking about his withered body. Whatever it is, what, what was once strong... And useful, he says, it's now destroyed. It's useless. Bildad had spoken about a tent being destroyed in chapter 18, verse 15. And, knew, and Job knew what this meant. He says here, my hope is uprooted like a tree. Now, he used a tree as a picture of hope back in chapter 14. But now he sees it as a symbol of no hope, lost hope. The difference is, is that in that chapter 14, Job was talking about a tree that was chopped down. While here, the tree is without roots, so it can't live. Verse 11 and 12. He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me, and they encamp all around my tent. And lastly here, Job feels like a surrounded city. He feels like God has declared war on him. And God is treating me like an enemy. And his troops have attacked me. They are, they're dug in for a long time. And, and it's going to be a long, hard siege. Once again, Job cannot understand why God has sent him so much suffering. He's saying in these, these verses, Why has God sent an army, using an army to destroy a tent? Like, it's overkill. Verses 13 through 22. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants, they count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. And again, that's because of the disease that he's suffering. I am repulsive to the children of my own body, again, because of his sickness. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. 
And those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me. Have pity on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me like God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Job in these verses goes on to explain how his suffering has affected his relationship with people. And many times, long drawn out and extreme pain often does isolate the people who are suffering from other people and the circumstances around them. When people really hurt, they may tend to withdraw and yet give the impression that it's the others who don't really understand what, what, what they're going through. Job felt distance from those left in his family and his friends and even his servants. They wouldn't answer him when he called. But there was more to this distancing than Job's pain. He was now bankrupt and sick. He was living at the city dump. Nobody wanted to be around him. Nobody wanted to be identified. I don't know that man. Not only that, people were convinced that Job was a guilty sinner. That's why he was suffering the judgment of God. But so, so again, because he was going all, all through, the, why would anybody want to be his friend? Why be his friend? The way he looked was sickening, nauseating. People wouldn't even look at him. He was being treated like a leper, an outcast. Not wanted by family or friends. And yet one of the signs of our Lord's compassion is the way he identified with the outcasts of society. He ate with publicans and sinners. He touched lepers. He accepted gifts from prostitutes. He even died between two criminals. Jesus knew what it was like to be despised and rejected of, of man and a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's so important that we, like his disciples, have this same kind of compassion. It's easy to identify with people that we know and when they're going through trials. But we tend to overlook the helpless and the poor and the neglected when they're suffering. What Job said in verse 20 has become a familiar, a familiar but misunderstood proverb where he said, I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Which means, Job says, I just barely escaped. Now in Hebrew, the word uh, by... Isn't isn't by okay? I have escaped by in Hebrew. It's not by. It's with. I have escaped with the skin of my teeth. But interpreters don't all agree with that meaning. Some suggest that Job meant I'm so far gone that only my gums are left. But the gums are not usually referred to as the skin of the teeth. Others say Job meant if there were if there were skin on my teeth, that's how close I came to death. Or my body is so emaciated that all I have left is the skin of my teeth. Which would be an exaggeration. Whatever it was, though, that Job was thinking, the picture clearly shows one thing. It was a, he's, saying, he's saying, it's a miracle that I'm still alive. And then Job closed this part of his, de, of his defense by asking his friends to have pity on him in verses 21 through 22. God was against him. His family and friends had deserted him. And all he had right now, he felt, was these, these three close friends. 
who were now after him like a wild like, like wild animals chase after their prey. He's thinking, well, well, couldn't they stop and couldn't they try to help me? Why, why do they have to have such hard hearts? Verses 23 through 29. He goes on, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. Notice, I, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you should say, how shall we persecute him, since the root of the matter is found in me? Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Why did Job want his words to be written down in a book? Why did he want them to be permanent? Because, you see, he thought he was going to die before God would clear him. And he wanted people to remember how he suffered and what he said. Bildad warned him in chapter 18, verse 17. He says, the memory of him perishes from the earth and he has no name among the renowned. Job wanted his record to remain And at this point, Job made another one of his statements of faith that in this book, it's kind of a break from many of the other things that he said about his grief and his pain. And it's significant that Job would go from the pit of despair to the heights of faith and then back down into the pit again. But isn't that what normally happens to us? When people are experiencing a lot of suffering. Man, the skies look cloudy one day. The next day they seem to be bright and sunny. And then a little light shines through. And the next thing you know, there's clouds again. Even in spite of what's taught from the pulpit many times. Not many people can keep a constant high level of faith and courage. In times of severe trial and pain. Henry Jowett. At one time, he was known as the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world. He wrote this to a friend. He says, I wish you wouldn't think I am such a saint. You seem to imagine that I have no ups and downs, but just a level and lofty stretch of spiritual attainment with unbroken joy and equanimity. That is calmness. He says, by no means. He says, I am often perfectly wretched and everything appears most murky. In verses 25 through 27 here, Job expressed confidence that even if he died, he says, I still have a redeemer who would judge me one day. Who would judge me, you know, one day on the earth. Not only that, Job said, That he expected to live again and to see his Redeemer. Look at verse 26. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know. That in my flesh I will see God. It was a confirmation of faith. In the resurrection of the human body. The Hebrew word translated Redeemer in verse 25 refers to the kinsman Redeemer. Which was the near relative who could avenge his brother's blood. 
who could reclaim and restore his brother's property and set his brother free from slavery. The kinsman redeemer could also go to court on behalf of a wronged relative. And we see that in the book of Ruth. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer who was willing and able to rescue Ruth and give her a new life in a new land. Earlier, Job had talked about how he he needed an umpire, an advocate in heaven to go before him and before the, 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 the court of God. And now he even takes it a step further. He says, his Redeemer will clear me one day and, he's gonna, and, and I'm going to be there to see it. When you think about how little God had, had shown Job, you know, about the, 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 the future life, th- these words become an amazing testimony of Job's faith. He knew very little about the resurrection. And when you add this to the discouragement that he, he, he shared with his friends and, and his own intense suffering, Job's witness, it becomes even more amazing. Now, of course, this kinsman redeemer is a picture of our Jesus Christ who took upon himself a human nature so that he might show us that he might show God to us. That he would reveal God to us. He said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. When you hear me, you've heard the Father. And so that he could experience everything that we experience. That he would die for our sins and then return to heaven to represent us. Before the Father. He's willing and he's able to save. Our kinsman redeemer. And one day, Christ is going to stand on the earth and he's going to bring judgment and he's going to clear his own people. And that's what Job is saying here. And then Job finished his speech with a word of warning to his critical three friends in verses 28 through 29. He says, they also will stand at God's judgment seat, so they had better be ready. They had better be ready. They had accused Job of being a sinner. But they were sinners too. They said that God was going to judge Job for his sins. They were going to judge his three friends for their sin as well. One day they were going to have to answer to God for the way they have spoken to and about Job. Job says, you better be ready. You better be aware of that. Closing with this statement of Abraham Lincoln, who once said, he has a right to criticize who has a heart to help. Father, thank you so much, once again, for the life of Job. Father, help us to learn, once again, to be victors and not victims. in whatever circumstances come upon us, God. And Lord, help us to be students. Help us to ask, ask, Lord, what do you want me to get from this? To get out of this? Rather than, Lord, how do I get out of this? 
Teach me, O Lord. Help us to be like Christ. As we learned last Sunday, to be imitators of Christ. And Lord, help us to understand that one day we will see our Redeemer. And that He will judge all man's sins. We won't be judged for our sins per se because Jesus died for our sins. But we will be judged for what we did upon this earth. Was it in the name of the Lord and for His glory? Or was it for my own pride and recognition? So Lord, we thank You again for Your love, Your grace, Your mercy. Move with us and with us, Lord, and upon us. Bless your children, Lord, as they head for home and for the rest of the week, God. We thank you, Lord, once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.